Welcome to the Women of Regenerative Ag podcast. This is a platform for the extraordinary women leading the regenerative agricultural movement and the transformation of our societies around the world. They are on the ground, creating critical shifts in seemingly intractable and highly unsustainable systems, and they have been doing so for a long time. I'm Aurora Flynn, creator of the show. In this series, we look to explore beyond the soil, to the underlying theme of transformation itself across size, scale, multiple dimensions, from that very internal landscape of human consciousness to the outer manifestation in the world around us, be it in the form of agricultural management practices, tools, and techniques, to culture, economics, policy, as well as the built environment. This series is a joint venture with Soil for Climate and my own organization, the Outer Borders Agency, where we work to help transform the human social infrastructure and the built environment to create truly resilient and regenerative societies. These recordings originally aired as interactive live stream interviews on social media. They were held during the initial months of the U.S. COVID lockdown, and due to limited facilities, we sometimes had to get creative with our locations and dealt with the occasional technical issue. Please enjoy these incredible women. You're listening to the Women of Regenerative Ag podcast. My guest today is Amber Smith, Program Director of Women in Ranching for Western Landowners Alliance. Women in Ranching provides transformational space for women to support human synergy around envisioning what is possible in agriculture. Amber has been ranching in rural communities for 14 years with her husband and two young children. They currently steward 53,000 acres known as Antelope Springs Ranch in eastern Montana. Her passion is rooted in building a future where rural families thrive and all people are empowered and supported in pursuing work that aligns with their personal goals and deeply connects them to their community. Her time studying in the Middle East and six years as activity director for a rural nursing home helped her develop a unique passion for creating spaces of dignity, joy, and acceptance. Let's dive into this. First of all, how are you and your family doing with everything that's been under, you know, been let loose in the world in the last few months of our lives in regards to COVID? You know, one of the privileges of caring for land and livestock is every single day, the needs are there. So whether it's checking water for cattle or moving cattle to fresh grass or checking on our, the kids and I have what we call our little goat family here in the barnyard, a pile of Nigerian dwarfs that are about ready to kid and going out early and checking on them. Um, It helps us stay grounded um, in a time that doesn't feel very grounded. And, you know, honestly, when we head into town is when you start feeling that things aren't like they used to be. Um, I, I am a board member of our local senior center and we met a couple weeks ago and are trying to reopen. And so looking at uh, what, what policies we need to change and what about the building we have to change in order to reopen. And um, the director's comment was, you know, life, life is different and it's never going back. So we need to take actionable steps so we can reopen the senior center. And it was the first time I had anyone say that and actually felt the brevity of that reality, um, things have changed and, and here we are. Yeah. And yet, 
you know, the things that we do and the life that we care for um, remains significantly important. Yeah, it's interesting you say that. I think that was something that dropped in for me this morning, getting ready. I was just sitting there and I had this moment. I was like, it's never going back. And I, it comes in waves and all of a sudden I'm like, oh, and I, and we know for multiple, you know, multiple sort of feedback loops and, and issues that are unearthing with the destruction of ecosystems that this was one of them. And right. And now that we've hit it and it's the first um, in our lifetime, it's, it's really not going back. It's a whole new saga. Um, we completely resonate with that. I want to give people a little bit of context to understand, you know, a bit more. And I love your choice of words there. You said you're stewarding 53,000 acres. And I can hear that that's intentional. So I'd love to know and share with everybody a bit about your operation and about what you're doing there. Yeah, so we were on the eastern side of Montana. You know, when most people think of Montana, they think of trees and rivers and mountains. Um, and we instead are rolling grassland prairie with beautiful hills with rocky outcroppings and um, badland areas that are painted pink and yellow and orange. Um, and most people look at them as sustaining no life and yet gumbo lilies and um, horned lizards and all sorts of things find make their home. Uh, there on those gumbo hills. So we actually um, lease this ranch from um, a landowner who's not based here in Montana, um, but we are aligned with the vision for this place and the vision for the property. Um, and all of us rest in the recognition that by managing the livestock in a different way, we're altering this landscape um, positively and it's mm. it's pretty awesome we've been here eight years now um, this spring my husband's comment was you know, I, I have nothing to back up this statement but things just seem things just seem more alive um, you know and as you know <laughs> from working with ranchers it's that anecdotal that ability for your eye to start seeing that change um, coupled with we have a third party that does our um, soil and plant monitoring here. And so we, we have the statistics to back that up. But uh, yeah, it's, it's just absolutely a privilege to be here. And I actually um, grew up in central Illinois in the middle of corn and soybeans. So um, my children are being raised in a way that didn't exist for me. My my whole childhood was spent hiking and camping and longing to have a horse. And now every day, my kids are out helping us put up fence and riding and they long for the days when they can sit inside and watch Mary Poppins. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, it's, that's just how it is. But um, actually when, when we're done here this morning, we have a whole wonderful crew of, mm. of neighbors and partners across Montana who are here. Um, we've had delicious and extravagant amounts of rain, so we weren't able mm. to drive out for our cattle work today. So everyone trotted out. There was, I don't know, 30 to 40 people out trotting. And so after this, the kids and I will 
my daughter and I will saddle up. My son wants to be on his dirt bike and, and off we'll go to, to enjoy this life. What a dream. Hard work, but a dream. That's mm. a lot of passion in that kind of, in that kind of lifestyle and play. Um, actually, yeah, that was one of my questions for you, for sure. That's quite a legacy that you're coming from. When did you first start noticing the soil in that relationship? So I would say one of the aha moments for me, yeah. um, you know, and we had been here six years and practicing holistic management and planned grazing and grazing with rest and recovery in mind. Um, and one of our good friends was here. We had a tour on the ranch. His name's Tony Malmberg. He and his wife, Andrea Ranch in Eastern Oregon. And he was commenting on on this little stand of cottonwood trees that was coming up that were between you know six inches and three feet um and his comment was you know grazing prior to trevor and amber's management kept that life you know it was really like the neck of this land was being stepped on and so mm. the full expression wasn't there and then when this land is given time to rest from grazing, things like cottonwoods and willows start appearing in the strangest of places. And mm -hmm. he talked about how often you're on a ranch and you see the same generation of trees. Um, and until you start seeing multiple generations, you know, that's a reflection on the grazing management. And we had spent uh, many years on a different operation and my brother had flown in from Tennessee and I, we were driving out to the ranch he goes god all the trees here are dying what's with all these dead trees and I just didn't have the eyes to see that all the trees were of the same generation um, yes yeah that was years and one comment to wake my eyes up to oh you know, look what's happening and look what's going on. And so we now have, you know, eight years of generations of cottonwoods, particularly cottonwoods and then a few wonderful places, Willow, um, reintroducing themselves. And, you know, for dry arid land, we typically get anywhere between eight and 12 inches of precipitation a year. Mm -hmm. um, so being able to see that life um, expressing itself is really exciting. So to help people understand a little bit about sort of management strategy, what, I mean, first of all, would you say you have a particular management strategy that you've utilized like holistic management or uh, that's one of the collapses that happens quite frequently? Like, are you grazing for sort of land focus or more like animal and body scores and stuff? And if you could explain that a little yeah. bit. Yeah, absolutely. So um we definitely have a dual approach you know we're we're managing the land in a way that when you're moving grazing animals across the landscape and giving that land time to recover so let's say you have four pastures and you start in pasture one and then you move to pasture two well when you've moved off of pasture one that allows that grass and those plants time to recover from being grazed. Mm -hmm. um, and these lands evolved 
you know, these grasses evolved um, with grazing animals, but those animals were moving. They weren't set in a place. And, um, you know, once we colonized and, and homesteaders came here to these Western rangelands, we started breaking it up with fence. And so then animals were stuck in one spot and that land, when it's continuously grazed, those plants don't have an opportunity to recover from that grazing pressure. And so with holistic management, um, you're, you're planning, you're grazing, and you're moving your livestock. Um, and here uh, we've been planning for a full growing season of recovery. So every pasture that we have gets one full season of rest while it's allowed to graze and produce seeds and those seeds fall back onto the soil surface. Um, and then we'll move into those pastures at different times a year and trample, you know, some of that is trampled down, some the animals graze. Um, yeah. <laughs> No, it's easy to go down a rabbit hole. I, it's a really important distinction to how, uh, and you, you, you've illustrated it really beautifully, sort of the spectrum of sort of evolutionary presence, right? And I think that's where what we really miss is sort of that ecological story that was running prior to our lifetime. Um, yeah. That really impedes, yeah. Yeah, and then Aurora, you've asked about if we're managing for um, the land or managing for the livestock. Yeah. And I had said it's dual. So my husband and I, uh, we do have a cow herd here and then we custom graze um, cows and calves and we custom graze yearling cattle and we custom graze ewes with little lambs. So we also have a sheep herd here. Um, and so, in order for us to make an income to remain on this land and take care of this land, our animals have to be thriving and being able to, you know, breed back and nurse babies and also be full of life. Um, and you can definitely push things ecologically and allow your livestock to decline, um, but that doesn't make sense for the whole picture because if our livestock decline and we lose our grazing clients um, then we're not here able to steward this so it's really looking at you know that whole piece that in order for us to do this work we have to be able to make an income and the only way you can make an income is if those animals are thriving with your management um, so it's really you know, it's an art, it's an, it's, you can plan and you can monitor, um, but then you often have to reconfigure. If your animals are showing that they're not comfortable and they're dissatisfied, <laughs> you know, then you need to make, make some changes and move them a bit quicker. And this year has been easy because it just keeps raining. And so everything's happy. The, the grasses are happy, the animals are happy. Gorgeous. Um, so this year, as my husband says, we look like geniuses. And it's <laughs> <so> <laughs> the earth knows what she's doing. <laughs> yes. Yeah, no, yes. it's, uh, and I feel like that's a whole nother rabbit hole we could get into in, um, maybe on another, on another show. The idea of, you know, just 
what animals eat, when they eat it, when they want to eat it, what can you actually adjust them to, to meet mm -hmm. that sort of ecological uh, tending that may need to happen during succession to get them to go after invasives that they may not be used to eating. You know, that's, it's a, that's a whole art and science and, and behavioral management in yeah. and of itself. So none of these are, are it, it, ranching always sounds simple. I think to outside, outside, you know, for people who aren't on the ground and the moment you get on the ground, you're going, wow, there's a wealth of rabbit holes and things to really consider. Yeah. And it is that brilliant flow of art and science. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, you were talking about breakdowns in the food systems. We were talking about the challenges that ranchers are seeing or actually sort of these opportunities for ranchers who are doing 100% grass fed, uh, grazing for ecosystem, you know, uh, restoration. Um, seeing some benefit to the awareness that's happening, but also revealing what was already present, which were a bunch of bottlenecks in distribution um, and, and slaughterhouse access. Can you talk a bit about that? Well, you know, uh, I think like every industry, agriculture um, has moved towards high efficiency and high productivity. Um, and we've all been really well trained to have those two things in mind all the time. Um, and unfortunately, when you, when you only focus on that, um, a lot goes by the wayside. So ecological health, uh, the way humans are being treated through the system, the way livestock and animals are being treated through the system, um, and it's hard and it's complex. And I will say, you know, it's really comfortable for my husband and I at this point when, you know, it's, it's fall and our calves are weaned, uh, we can load them in a truck and drive to the sale barn. And, you know, we're price takers. You get, you get what you get and you might be disappointed, but at that point you can wash, wash your hands of it. Um, however, you know, if we move towards a more regional system, um, which I think is possible, but it's going to take uh, financial investment, it's going to take a lot of human creativity, um, there is potential and there are options. And we're, you know, with Cattle prices down so low. Um, my husband and I are talking with all sorts of partners and trying to figure out some different marketing avenues for our animals, which in the long term is the right way to go. Um, but this is something we've talked about. Aurora is making those changes and how fear can be wrapped up in change and how sometimes even if things aren't good, it's what you know and it's easier to stay with, with what you know um, than be the person stepping out and doing something different than the rest of your community or than how things have been done for three generations on your operation. Um, yeah, you know, I well, think COVID brought a lot of things to the surface that all of us who are in the industry know, you know, those potentials and that breakdown is there and you just hope it doesn't happen. Um, well, Amber, because can you talk? Scary. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think it would be really helpful for community to understand where the breakdown is. Like, can you talk about uh, you're moving the cattle from operate from being grass fed? Are they grain finished or they're hundred percent? And where are you taking them after? Um, 
Yeah. So, yeah. right. So we, we custom graze a lot of our cattle. So we have cattle going through all different sorts of situations. And currently the livestock coming off of this ranch, mostly are grain finished at the end. Um, and from a producer standpoint, if you feed livestock grain, you're, you're shortening your time of risk. Um, if we're finishing cattle on forage and on the land, you're increasing by quite a lot the amount of months and the amount of days that the animals stay on the land, which increases for you as the owner, it increases your risk. And so for a lot of people, your calves are born in the spring, um, you run them through the summer, then in the fall you sell them and you get your check, you know? So that's your one check for the year. And then those calves are moving into a feedlot situation typically through the winter. Then the following spring, they're put back out on grass and then typically finished, you know, that last fat is finished on grain. Um, and again, that's efficient. It's very efficient to do things that way. Um, I think, but. right. Well, so, I mean, I, I, and I think we should just not be fearless here to kind of talk about the, but so, you know, you said to me on the, when we had talked, we were talking about, there's no such thing as, as cheap food. Right. Mm -hmm. And we're talking and it's not just externalities like what happens to the ecosystems, but it's like who's actually working in slaughterhouses of that yeah. size and why that doesn't work yeah. in, a, in yeah. as a distribution in times of COVID yeah. or, or otherwise. Um, and you I loved your awareness on that. That's that's more where I was headed to. Uh, yeah. Where yeah. The breakdowns so. Are. Yeah. So, you know, we're employing people mostly of color um, in our processing facilities that we can employ cheaply and we can train them on specific minute tasks. So one cut. Um, so you're standing in the assembly line making one cut and you know these people are then you know, when, when COVID started popping up in the slaughterhouses and there was all this conversation about um, safety for the workers in the slaughterhouse, my mind immediately went, not so much even in the work facility, what's going on, but if you're thinking about what these folks are being paid and more than likely they're living in small housing situations all clustered together um, for the opportunity at the American dream. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Right. Not good. That's. And yeah. yeah. So you know, one of our biggest. We, as an industry, we've done a really, really good job of separating all the players from each other. So the ranchers, no ranchers. The guys working in the feed yard, no feed yard. The folks who are processing know their skill. We've separated all of it and we've uncoupled it from community. And so things are moving across large spaces and no one through the value chain is connected. Um, 
And so if we can recouple those pieces and bring those conversations and all of those players so much closer, um, yes, I'm sure you lose some efficiency, but what you gain back is connected community and people being able to know and understand how their products are being raised and how they're being handled through the chain and who's doing the handling and um, being able to honor all of us through that system and being able to honor the final consumer of the product. We've lost that as we've chased productivity and efficiency. And, um, you know, it's been so long, I think most of us don't even remember. And when I, so where I grew up, we had a small Amish community. And so on the weekends, we would go on a Saturday and we would buy, buy our meat there and we're driving past all of these farms and all of these people are out working. Um, and my family, you know, built that relationship to place and to our food. Uh, we would go out in the summer and pick strawberries in the fields, which is one of my favorite memories of childhood is having these buckets of gorgeous little, little strawberries are meant to be small um, <laughs> strawberries that we would weigh and, you know, pay cash for and come home. Um, so that was my reality of where my food came from. And when I met my husband, we were working on a guest ranch and I, we introduced ourselves to each other and he said, oh, you know, I'm from a ranch. It's like a ranch. <laughs> I didn't understand or know there was such thing as a ranch. And so right away, my mind is like going to John, uh, Clint Eastwood and John Wayne and, and thinking like, oh, so this, this exists, which I'm sure you can imagine my, my husband thought was hysterical. Um, but I hadn't pieced together, you know, I lived in country where people had farms and they had 20 to 50 head of cows. And I didn't understand that there was a whole, you know, industry built on, on cattle and grazing. Um, yeah. So it's, it is certainly it is certainly complex, and I think agriculture has so much room uh, for entrepreneurship and new visioning and people coming in from different sectors. Um, the challenges are great, but the opportunity feels unlimited. Yeah, I think that's. Uh, yeah, I think you know, part of the externalities and the cost of, you know, of what we call, you know, what, what you were saying about cheap food, you know, and about is, is that we really don't factor in the quality of human life um, yeah. as well. And so what that is, um, and that's a, that's a socioeconomic legacy. That's a cultural legacy uh, that's really expressing itself in the separateness of the jobs and who gets those jobs and what they're paid and the lives they live. Um, and that quality is absolutely not factored into it. And then it's ignored by the time that dollar hits, you know, that piece of meat hits the shelf. So, yeah, this is a part of what, I, what I, I think is part of the benefit of what's happening with COVID is recognizing that these supply chains aren't actually sustainable. They never have been. Um, and, 
and that there's a huge social equity cost happening when it comes to people's health and well-being. And that really does matter, uh, not just because it should morally, but because it actually has an impact when it comes to public health, right? We all, it, you, you don't have communities that are suffering like that and not address it and expect it not to impact the whole because it does. Um, and that was, yeah, part of what I really loved about, about what I'm hearing you guys work on over there. Um, I'm getting a, a question from Seth and I wanna take you into, from Nick Harper, how much of the positive impact of regenerative grazing is lost when the cattle are sent to feedlots for finishing? and fed grain produce um, in, some, uh, in some of the most ecologically destructive methods. It's a deeply flawed uh, model. It's a really legit question. You guys are doing extraordinary work to custom graze like that. It takes a lot of effort to have the last two weeks, probably last two weeks to grain finish. Is this because a lack of slaughterhouse access? Why that choice? Well, so if you look you know, if you look at the industry as a whole, we basically have rangelands that aren't productive enough to be farmed. And so livestock are being grazed on those. And then you have any land that is productive enough to be farmed pretty well is being farmed. Um, so absolutely. I mean, it is, a, it is a break in the system to move animals off of this and onto land that continues to be tilled and fertilized and all of that is running into the Missouri and the Mississippi and heading yeah. to the Gulf Coast and creating hundreds of thousands of miles of dead zone that we've all just decided to accept as um, just a part of efficiency and productivity. Um, and I think in order to turn that around, you know, these are conversations on policy. And so, you know, talking to farmers in Illinois, they can make a lot more money planting corn and soybeans than they can planting a cover crop and bringing on the risk of bringing the livestock in and grazing that cover crop. And it's a complete 100% shift and part of that shift has to be the economics. So if it's not economically viable for somebody to do something and then we're asking as a consumer base for them to do it, do you think that's going to happen? It's, right. it's not going to. And so how are we coupling this with changed policy, um, changed practices, changed paradigms around yes. how this entire system could look and could work and so right. you now when i talk to producers here in montana um all of whom are using holistic management practices some of whom are direct marketing three to ten head a year but they're raising six to nine hundred <laughs> head of calves every year because we don't have the population here to eat those cattle um, and then you're asking them to take on this huge risk and they don't have a market for that grass-fed meat. I mean, does that make sense? It's this Absolutely. huge, huge conversation. And so some folks have told me, you know, Amber, when you can figure out, when you have um, 
50,000 acres of farmland in central Illinois and you have farmers willing to change their practices and plant cover crops and take our cattle on and finish them, we would love to jump into that. And when you have a market, so my cattle can go through that market. Um, yeah, so there's a lot of work, a lot of work to be done and a lot of conversations. And, you know, typically ranchers and farmers, again, there's breakdowns here where there aren't conversations happening, or you have a lot of farmers who will have, you know, 20 to 30 head of cattle and finish with some of their farm crops. Um, yeah. I think you're really, I mean, because we can, we can dissect this for days on end. And I know I love it because this is really important for people to hear. Community need to understand that this is not something that ranchers and farmers strictly have control of by any stretch of the imagination. So hard and then and, and it doesn't fall the pendulum does not go to to 100 consumer and that's probably a word we need to do away with responsibility for a variety of reasons right so this is why i i am feel really privileged and really excited also because of the women i know to know of women in ranching and the work that you're doing because everything you're talking about doing is a multi-systemic shift that requires uh, quite a few different agents from lobbyists to uh, to a st grocery store owner, to the head of the Farmers Guild, to NGOs that are helping, you know, get the word out, right, to shift that, um, to have uh, investors. Yep, and people working in a, in a space of possibility, right, because this is hard, and, um, and it is, uh, it needs strategy, it needs multiple teammates in, in cultural, uh, cultural dissemination of understanding ecosystem function and relationship. Uh, Precious Perry, the African coordinator for Regeneration International on last week was speaking with me about, you know, this interruption where she's having in that intergenerational transmission and she's having to sit with people on the land again and go, what are you witnessing? Get them to understand the language of the earth again, to see what's happening there, how the systems are interacting. And most of all, to even understand that there's a, a degradation on a level that uh, is not registered in one lifetime. So part of my journey, for instance, has been understanding the California Serengeti and what that was possibly like just a couple of generations ago, right? And so, uh, and that being vitally important when we understand the potential, the panacea of what it is to regenerate soil. And part of what I loved about when we spoke was that we were, you talked about that photograph, that really classic photograph of just going, you know, here's holistic planned grazing and here's what's hap you know, happening if you're, if you're letting, if you're not grazing it or you're continuously yeah. grazing and there's the immediate response to be like, well, do this, just do what, what needs to be done to create that please and just do that already, right? And you mm -hmm. said you had a comment about that photo that I think really summed up a, a huge piece that people miss when they discover the wealth of soil. You remember what that was? <laughs> well, <laughs> um, you know, I will say, and this is something Elaine Paderini at Piscinus Ranch that yeah. she and I have talked about, and it was her comment that really cued me in. You know, you see those photos, and just like you said, like, make the change already, what's happening there? And she said, you know, when she sees those photos, what she sees are, um, you know, a broken family, a broken community, um, 
conversations that aren't happening. And so actually this fall, Women in Ranching is hosting a virtual gathering called Beyond Fence Lines, um, titled as such really because of that comment from Elaine. And so if we start picking our heads up a bit and looking beyond what's in our own yard, uh, beyond what's on our own 240 acres or 10,000 acres, what's going on in our community. And what you're seeing in these rural communities is um, there's a statistic that 60% of land is going to change hands over the next decade. Um, that a, more than half of ranchers are over the age of 60 as compared to under the age of 40. And you know, here in my own community, we have ranches all around us popping up for sale. And who's, who's coming? who's coming to take care of these lands and who, who is going to be the next generation um, that comes on this place and, and what are we doing if we're missing out, no matter how the prior generation or five generations managed before, right. they have their, their reasons and their logic for that um, and being able to sit and listen and empathize and understand but it does not mean we move forward in agreement with that same methodology or that yes. same practice. Um, and being able to find uh, a group of practice or people to support us through change and transition. And that is what I see over and over again in the women and ranching community is women are coming to these gatherings and identifying with a sense of being an imposter um, on her land and in her community and not knowing if what she has to offer um, anyone is going to desire or accept or let her bring forward. Um, and so when you create space for people to challenge their assumptions about what they're capable of, challenge their narratives of why things have to be done in a certain way, and you allow them to identify in a new way and create a new narrative um, and find a group of people who will support them in that. There is a shift. Um, and it is strong and it is powerful. And when you hold witness to people transitioning and moving through that um, and going home and then, you know, feeding back to each other what's happening and how it's looking, uh, it's, it's really exciting. And it's what keeps me uh, wanting to be a part of this work. And today, actually, we have I think there's four of our um, of our women in the program here helping on our ranch today, and two of them were like giggling and really excited to meet one of the others. They haven't been in circle together, um, and just this uh, almost the star power of seeing another woman living out what is inside of you and what you know is there. Um, being able to see that 
is transformational. And um, my small example, my daughter last year, we were working cattle and um, one of our stock owners has a 16 year old daughter and she was out roping. And my little girl said, I wanna be doing what Bella's doing next year. Now she loves her daddy and she loves the other men who come and help, but I've never once heard her say, I want to be like my daddy and, you know, be able to do these things. But she looked at Bella and said, I want to be like Bella and I want to be able to do that next year. Um, so I get to see that and witness that and um, find facilitators who have the skill to hold that space and, and to lead women through that process. Um, and it is a complete honor and a complete joy. And that change and that type of community is really what each and every one of us needs, whether we're a woman or whether we're a man, um, we each need community like that to hold us to our highest self and to hold us to our goals and to hold space for us when we create a big leap, um, and then we run into 27 roadblocks who, you know, who is there to, to support you through that. Well, so that, you know, I think that really that bookend from legacy ranching, right? So that was the flip side of, you know, needing the ecological knowledge and the wisdom is w what I see women in ranching remedying, which is an issue within sort of legacy ranching, right? You had that, that quote you gave that you said um, from Kit Farrow, ranching progresses one funeral at a time. Uh, and I'd love for you to talk a bit about that and what those, what impedes that. And also for everybody to keep in mind that this isn't just a, a, a ranching community phenomenon, but this is when radical shifts in perspective are offered up and, and there's, there can be absolute resistance. And what, what is that you're, that you're, that he's speaking to there and that you find? Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I was actually at a, a kind of a convening of, of stock, stockmen types. Um, and Kit made that comment in front of the crowd and I laughed out loud and then it soaked in and I felt horrified by that comment. And yet I laughed because I could recognize it, right? It was something I had experienced and something I had seen. Um, and so what do we do about that? Um, and you look at agriculture and people are working really hard every day. They're often making um, a very limited income or a subsistence income. Oftentimes partners and spouses are working in town to get health insurance and to have something in savings. Um, and so if you're able to keep a hold of your land and transition it to the next generation, even if you have hovered at break even during that whole time, the fact that you were able to do that um, I think a lot of times, you know, that, that's the hope that I have someone who's going to come home 
and that I did a good enough job that I can give it to them. Now, you're asking that individual to start looking at their practices critically and to start thinking with a paradigm of maybe I could make a profit. Um, you know, so this is the ranching for profit school that is so popular. Uh, all of the time you hear people say like, that's a joke, you can't make profit ranching. And so I just wanna offer that context. Um, I think people have this idea that ranchers are these rich, really privileged people who are just stuck in their old ways and don't wanna change. Um, and actually it's, it's hard and it's scary. And so, you know, when people are ready to make that shift is often uh, when they're pretty down and out and they're gonna have to change something in order to hold it all together for the next generation. Um, and you see kids coming home, uh, some do, and then there's a lot who don't, right? Because it's a hard life, <laughs> and you worked really hard, and you watched your parents scrape by. Um, right. Yeah, and so what I see with the women in ranching community is we have women who have been a part of agriculture for generations. We have a lot of women who are new to agriculture and coming in with so much enthusiasm and so much knowledge um, often with college educations, and they're so excited, and then they butt into okay. uh, tradition. Yes. Um, and there is so much good about tradition. So when you have tradition, you know your place, you know how you belong, you know the ways in which you're allowed to engage, and that can be comfortable. If you're coming and wanting to be different. Um, tradition is going to push you back to here is your role, here is the way in which you fit, and if you want to belong, you need to be a part in this way. Right. And so what I'm seeing a significant portion of women who ranch do um, is they're really saying no, this isn't the way that I'm going to engage. This isn't the way that I want to caretake for this land. I want to do something differently. And that's hard, um, but it's necessary. I mean, we, we have to have, we have to have that change because if we progress one funeral at a time, we're going to be out of harvest seasons. Um, really fast. You know. Yeah. And, yeah. And we know, we know what that story looks like. And I don't, I don't wish to live into that story. It's one of the most challenging things right now is sort of this paradox between um, increasing connectivity and belonging, that authentic presence and acceptance of other in, in the fullest expression of who they are while also going, and this needs to shift. This is a boundary we're drawing now. We're out of time. This is, we're moving, let's go forward. And that rejection is a very primal response, right? We know that sense of belonging, that's one of the indicators I use and I track in community. It has all sorts of really negative consequences when you are impacted with that feeling like you don't belong. And it's not just 
belonging to community. It's belonging existentially to the earth. Do, do you have that kind of connection? And it's belonging to self. And that's one of the most traumatic is when you divorce yourself from who you authentically are and you aren't able to embody that and you're stuffing down your words and you're not expressing your thoughts and beliefs for fear of rejection. That's a massive toxicity load. It lowers your immunity. Um, it, it's, uh, it, and it, it is really, I think, a foundation to some respects how our, how sort of Western communities are built, quite frankly. I don't, mm. it, it seems like there's a freedom of expression, but there's a lot of these underlying drivers constantly, even sometimes around being different as opposed to it really being authentically rooted in this, in this self. Um, mm -hmm. And we run the risk quite easily with sense of belonging. And this is a question I have about the women in ranching and I would love for you to provide a little bit of structure and context for how these gatherings and um, how they're facilitated um, is that you run the risk of running into conformity while you're trying to achieve that sense of belonging with self. You're still going, you know, I, I, I how do I authentically, I, I talk about it in terms of embodiment, you know, like when you get somebody who's rooted into their self and they're unapologetic and they're not being pulled by uh, wanting to appear any which way. I think that's why you were talking about Ariel Greenwood, who's showed up today, who's just one of these phenomenal, um, I would call her a very authentic embodied individual. And I've known her for quite a few years now. And Ariel has maintained her curiosity and her exploration of self mm -hmm. and relationship to land in a really courageous and brave and inspiring way but without a, a without a need for attention or vocality she just is being aerial and this is why I laugh because I go to these fractals of like Joel Salatin our, our, our very own lunatic farmer where he talks about the pigness of the pig right or the you know the cowness of the cow that if you honor these you know these biophysiological processes um expressions within the animals and you're giving them sunshine and good earth and what their evolutionary biology dictates that they need to consume in order to have these healthy bodies and these happy lives. Um, and then you live within the sacredness of that harvest cycle. Um, that, you know, Amber has her amberness. Ariel has her aerialness. Aurora has her aurora-ness. And when we're not full-fledged in that, you know, unbridled expression and, and safety of being self, we will never shift these intractable systems because there's a lot of standing up to do while creating greater connection and intimacy. Good boundaries increase intimacy. Barriers absolutely break them down. And you set up a barrier when you're brittle and you're afraid rather than loving going, no, I've got you. I'm here. That doesn't work. Right. Mm -hmm. That's what I see coming out of women in ranching. I would love for you to speak to all of that. Anything that you're inspired with. No, oh, that that was beautiful, and I I definitely connect at a very personal level um, with with the things that you with you that you just mentioned. Um, so, women in ranching was built on the idea that when you create community, good things happen, and when you bring people together, especially people in these far flung places who are doing this incredible work, often alone, or maybe with a spouse or partner, maybe with children, um, there's a lot of, of quiet time. And so being able to bring those women together in circle uh, with facilitators to get them to dive deep about um, what, 
who are you and what do you want and how do you want to be involved in a way that is still not asking of them. So when I first participated in Women in Ranching, when I left, I came home and said it was the first time in my 15 years in agriculture that I felt heard, appreciated, and valued for exactly who I was with nobody asking any more of me. But in that space, I was able to come alive um, to what I wanted to ask of myself and how I wanted to be engaging um, and the skills that I bring to the branching tradition that aren't typical and that's connectivity and bringing in unique people and unique partners and hosting conversations that are uncomfortable and need to be held. Um, those are skills mm. that are, are deeply needed in our rural places. Um, I think it would probably so, most places where we are, yeah. we are using a level of polarity as a nation and as a globe mm. that is staggering. Um, and I think you're hitting on probably, uh, I'm really curious about with women in ranching, Amber, one of the most, I mean, it's the whole, <laughs> my best friend Amy said last night, she was like, it's the whole enchilada, right? The challenging conversations. <laughs> How do you do them in a graceful, uh, clear, and very uh, open grounded, direct communication um, that's fully responsible for emotional integrity. It's fully responsible for impact and going, yes, I occurred for you that way. Help me understand. Like, these are really seemingly basic skills that are completely yeah. lost right now in my, I mean, I, like, I, I look at everything I'm asked to do in the world and I go, can we actually deal with what's in the room? which is this mm. fundamental projection that exists between human beings of my reality imposed on yours. Uh, which creates a complete lack of clarity around a subjective truth. And I know that sounds a little convoluted. I know you speak this language. I'd love uh -huh. to hear also about this as well. And, you know, a bit more for people about yeah. how do you provide yeah. well, clarity for challenging dialogue? Yeah. And I think, um, honestly, a set of skilled facilitators and having women who are comfortable holding that space because not all participants are comfortable, especially right at first. Um, I had our final group last fall. <laughs> I felt I built a really safe situation with easy questions um, the first evening, just to slowly bring people into it. So we didn't dive too deep too quickly. And my question was, what did it take for you to arrive here today? Mm. And so we went around the group um, and I actually handpicked women who had participated before. So, you know, to make it easy for the rest of the women to warm up and all three of them just started out in tears. Uh, and I thought, what? <laughs> wait, 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 no, 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 you're going too deep too quickly. Just, uh, and that's not true. Uh, women are just ready to go there and ready to be in community. Um, and I had a couple of women tell me like, oh, I'm a bit uncomfortable. I, you know, there's some people who have cried around strangers and this makes me uncomfortable. And so I, what I explained to them is, you know, this is a pool and there's a shallow end, there's a deep end, 
oh, if you're yeah. ready to if you're ready to sit and just brush your toe across the top of the water if you're ready to dive in head first mm -hmm. as long as you stay around this pool yeah that's all i'm asking mm -hmm. and and where you're ready to jump in and how you're ready to engage that is fully up to you which okay. you know that created that shift like okay you know i'm here and here's how i am um and actually we were on uh the northern cheyenne uh, land here in southeastern montana at the wild rose center uh, with april chalfond and she um, led us with several other native women through a um a sweat lodge ceremony and I told my husband, I think every human being who's about to have a crucial conversation with a group of people should go through that experience. So we, we all enter the sweat lodge and there are these big jugs, Tropicana jugs full of water. Mm -hmm. And April said, you know, you should all take a drink. It's going to get very hot very quickly. And, and you know, white women and sharing water, like, <laughs> so... <laughs> It pretty well, like a few of us took sips and it kind of went around. Well, we get through one, one part of the series and that flap opened up and the jug came in and we were all guzzling and water is just pouring down our fronts yeah. and women are like splashing it on themselves. And yeah. I thought, ah, oh, we've arrived. Yeah. Yes. Like, we are now, yes. we are now all equal. Yes, um, we've all we've all come to this, and yeah. you know we all came in with expectations and our thoughts and our um, holding ourselves tight and close, and you put some biological pressure and <laughs> it's I, well, all of that. It's a, you are <laughs> fighting totally. I mean, these are waves and waves, layers and layers and layers of a social fabric that has yeah. utterly restricted everything from inclusivity and equality to just going, you are me, I am you, honey. Like I'm yes. gonna treat you as I treat myself and my soul and I'm gonna treat myself and soul right. as I am of that humility in the earth. And that comes generally right. I find from really what they call post-traumatic growth. I find it from the mm -hmm. most shattered beings on the planet are the most exceptional and the most extraordinary because mm -hmm. they have a resiliency and a flexibility to, to transform that you know you're witnessing within that rite of passage within that practice of sweat um the removal and the leveling of masks and exteriors and frontage to that utter like i have yeah. no energy to hold that anymore right illness yeah. will take you there yes. a, a grief will take you right and that's yes. we have it's part of my mission is that we've utterly destroyed what is a, a, a phoenix cyclical process that is very innate to the human journey and is completely a part of our expansiveness. And we've utterly retarded it with pathologizing emotions, for instance. And that's part of what you're hearing mm -hmm. with that beautiful woman who's going, I'm seeing people express emotion. I work with men who haven't cried since they were boys. They can't, they go, I don't feel anything, right? And of course, yeah. emotions are always a part of the neurological processes. Your yeah. brain doesn't run without them. Logic is not supreme. You're in denial at that point. Um, mm. And if you can allow the emergence of emotions, you can garner mm. wisdom, right? But we return mm. the process. We go, don't let it up. I don't want to feel it. That's about you. That it has nothing to do yeah. with 
any type of belief pattern I've established and then you're locked in and you're in that toxicity and then there's no innovation or possibility uh, to know Mm. what you don't even know. Right. Mm. And that's all of those layers. Yeah. Yeah. And I think this, um, this idea, so you asked about, you know, intergenerational and knowledge sharing and, um, you know, sitting in circle with incredible women who are experienced, who are my seniors. Um, my, I'll be very honest, my assumption when I look at women like that is they've done the right things, they've made the right choices, like their life is good and successful, and it's because of their efforts. And it was actually at the first, my first experience with women in ranching that that was completely shattered for me. So I'd spent the weekend with women who I thought that about each and every one of them. And then we sat in circle and the question that was asked was, what is your fear regarding your big leap? And a big leap is really just a personal goal. And so it's asking women to set a goal for themselves, you know, how big, how small, that's up to them. Um, And so, you know, we're sitting in circle and we had this beautiful rock that had come from the ocean that we were passing around. So if you weren't ready to share, you just passed the rock, but we stayed together as that rock continued to go around. And I looked at these women, um, you know, who I would call mentors to me, um, share fears and and concerns and worries. And I thought, yes, wait, so she's, 30 years my senior she is amazing and she has these like self-limiting ideas like it was crushing and awe-inspiring at the same time and what I recognize is what I wake up to every single day and the things I must push through in my own mind I will have these, these will be my shadows um, ongoing, you know, they're always there. And, and it's once we bring them forward and um, acknowledge them that I think they no longer have so much um, ability to create harm for us, quite honestly. Yeah, I Um, completely. I think you're talking about something that I think is quite, we're all responsible for, right? This cultural fabric. And I think there's something quite troubling about this predilection we're trained in, which is to pedestalize people and to be mm. pedestalized, right? So we create mm. projects to get attention. We, we mm. wanna see how many likes we get on Facebook. We wanna mm. you know, get in this, right? We wanna get notoriety. Academia for me was sort of this mass exposure to that was the ball game, right? Um, yeah. And I've, I thought I'd been around a lot of a lot of identities that way and this was kind of like you have to be on the pedestal and it's particular you also see this a lot uh with male leadership right is to go he's got to be the guy he's got to be in the know he's got to have all of it together he can't feel emotion he can't feel his heart he can't be vulnerable because vulnerability is a weakness right why do we like that i keep coming back to it and i want to go back to pedestalizing but the pathology um and the pedestalizing uh, pathology of emotion, it's a dehumanization process, right? You have angry, hysterical women, right? Angry natives, angry black women, like God forbid she gets hit with that. And most of the women of color in my life, that's what they're afraid of being hit with. 
um, you get sissy man, right? God forbid you should have an emotional expression and not keep it together. Um, I, I broke down in hysterics and sobs so many times in academia um, from the sheer force of repression of them going, don't be, do not express, do not be authentic, do not confront, do not challenge, do not expose our duplicitous behavior. Um, that type of loss of integrity for me is huge. When I see a lack of professional integrity, I'm like, hey, let's just call it out and deal with it. And then it was kind of like, I was told by the women, they were like, what are you doing? You want your work in the world? And, that, and they were right, Amber, I got slammed. I got absolutely professionally snuffed, loss of access to fellowships. I'm still crawling out of that hole, but I wouldn't be compromised because I was outraged that somebody would go, we're not going to listen to you speak and we're going to do the silent thing, right? And, and I know best, I'm up on the pedestal. And this is unfair actually to all of us, right? Because then the game of society is to get them off the pedestal, right? Mm -hmm. And so then men have to lock down even more, women even more, I've got to keep it together. They aren't their authentic selves. And then the people who are actually in grievance can't be their authentic selves and actually tap back into who they are. Not that they are the trauma they're feeling, but even come home to that because they are not allowed to feel the trauma. Do you get what I'm saying? Yeah. Oh, yeah. 100%. That's outrage yeah. for me. Yeah. And, you know, what I see um, expressed in my own family. So yeah. my husband, uh, we have two children and he grew up as, you know, fifth generation rancher. So very much a part of, of the tradition and the culture and, um, the burden and the shame that can be carried thinking it's a hundred percent up to you whether this works or doesn't work yes and how often you know i will say like we're in this together and we're making these choices together yeah. and there's going to be times it doesn't work like that's just how it is um the patriarchal yeah. responsibility in that is really toxic as well. I think that was yeah. standing you know, with and then your your children, you know, kids are way too smart and watch everything and watch watch behavior and watch face and yeah. hear tone of voice and um, you know, they they're being brought into that from day one. Um Yeah, it, it's it's an, a daily journey to live into our authentic selves and and to break down the systems of of exactly what you're describing that places people in in these in these insane roles and our our Amer American identity of um, I am the sole yeah. master of my ship. You know, I yeah. can pull myself up. Um, it's all on my shoulders for it's this exhausting. to either happen. Oh, and, and yeah. it's what we are. I mean, all of us, we, we are, are so proud of our um, individualism and our heroicism around these individual characters. And yeah, these, these are narratives that we need to shed. Well, so this is, I mean, and I think this is the power of, of I want to ask you about some of the challenges the women are speaking about, because 
uh, as much as, you know, this is a platform for women, this is also about, I, I mean, I really look at my work I and mean, a lot of the people I work with are, are men. And so that yeah. position you're talking about is that patriarch who's going, how do I govern and manage? How do I, how do I run the cattle and have the job as the trucker? Yeah. And how, like they have, I mean, we have a suicide rate of between ages 40 yeah. and 50, three times higher yeah. amongst Caucasian men. There's a really yeah. particular cultural reason in yeah. my mind for that. I know there's a lot of debate. Mm -hmm. I don't see a lot of debate when I'm interacting with them all the time and they're choking. Mm -hmm. They're not expressing. Mm -hmm. They don't have the integrated family relationships and bonds that we're designed to have. They don't have the expression for the help that they need, that they deserve, that mm -hmm. it is within the honor and integrity to share the, what's, what's in their heart and what's happening there. And every time I work with a rancher, it's not about, hey, let's, let, we start with the soil, but we know, he and I both know right away that's not gonna work unless this is working yeah. and it's working with his wife and the kids and the, right? And that's yeah. all of it. That is all of it yeah. in my mind. Um, and it's, yeah. it's, I think more than anything, I want community um, who are discovering soil to understand that unless we regenerate the social fabric, we, you know, and people actually get together and, and can systemically make these moves and then get up and go vote and voting is a huge part of this. Yeah. Um, this isn't, this isn't going to be viable. And that's, what, is, what are you finding like some of these stressors and challenges for women in the ranching community stepping into their own as land stewards? And particularly oh. also the dynamic with men. Like, let's just be. Yeah, yeah. Um. Well, it depends, of course, on how she's coming into it. And so um, I see young, passionate, educated women coming into it out of desire to be involved in regenerative agriculture. And I think a lot of them find a lot of loneliness. Um, it is... Mm very hard and we had years ago um, we had a neighbor who hired a young woman who fit exactly what I described um, and the comments I would hear in the community were so often negative um, I'm not even sure if she was aware <laughs> of a lot of what was being said but things like you know, why would he hire her unless he's just wanting like something on the side of his wife, you know, that kind of stuff. Oh yeah. Uh, no, like, I think this is, I'd like to share more of that. Cause I think women, we get together and we go, we've all heard about the same 10 comments and they're really frequent. Yeah. And we all sit there with a thousand cuts, not understanding the yeah. impact that is happening culturally to, to that. Yeah. Self. So I, I have a good example actually here from our ranch. We were, we had a big branding crew and a young woman from Wisconsin who's interning here in Eastern Montana. And she's a go-getter and just an absolute beauty. Um, she is so fun to be with. And she came from dairy farming. So she's a hard worker. You know, she's been around livestock all her life. Um, and so she was wanting to learn one of the skills that at that point, it was mostly the men who were doing it. And we had an older neighbor 
who stood there and coached her. He was fantastic. And she was super quick to learn. She did awesome. And so at the end of the day, I said, you know, you did great. I'm so proud of you. And thank you for coming and helping us. So then the next day, um, that older neighbor wasn't there. Um, and she was working on it herself. And one of the young men, she missed one of the calves. She was trying to like correct the situation, but she's learning. She just needed somebody to help. And he fairly assertively just injected himself, pushed her out of the way and completed it. And she yeah. said, if you would just tell me I can do this. And he didn't even acknowledge that she spoke. And I was watching and, oh, it only takes a few of those times, depending on your personality, until you just, yeah. okay, you know, obviously I'm not going to get this figured out or I'm causing a small disaster because I didn't get that calf or, and that self-talk starts and the negative yeah. self-narrative. And then women just pull back. They just pull back from it. Um, yeah. That's, and uh, I was, I was really, I was disappointed, you know, and I talked to her later and said, you know, you've got it. You just, you have to keep after it and you're going to find people who interject themselves and push you out of the way. So when you've identified them as such, move on to somebody else because nice there was plenty of people, yeah. men and women that day who would have been happy to say, Oh, you know, do this, do that. There you go. You've got it. Um, and yeah. so it's really having the, the self-confidence to keep finding the people um, who are open to being teachers and sharing that knowledge. And um, yeah. 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 And I think there's also that evolutionary point where you also start going and, and it ta it's taken me many, many, many years. I'm not saying this is easy and it's actually, I got mm -hmm. taken, I feel like I got taken down to the roots in order to do it. Um, but mm -hmm. there's, there's that really tendency in the culture to be in the know, right? To get it right. That's the driver, get it right. To be in the know, I got it right, yeah. it was me. Um, and, yep. and men, we know from studies are far more vocal in this expression than women. They're gonna be the first ones to mm -hmm. raise hands or not even to raise their hands, but to mm -hmm. speak, right? And so often mm -hmm. it's not even like, you know, and it's, it's kind of an automatic, let me tell you how to do that and how to do it differently than the way you're doing it with no inquiry as to what's happening there for her. Um, right. Uh, and I, I remember uh, you're reminding me of a, a really small moment of fixing a plumbing leak in my father's home. My father's a wonderful man, but he also has a similar like, don't mess with it. You don't know. Don't let, let the guy do it, please. And I was, I YouTubed it. And I went to the, I went to the mm -hmm. hardware store and I got, and I was like, dad, where's the power main? I'm shut, or where's the, sorry, where's the water line? I'm going to go shut. And he was in horror. And my mom's best friend, who's a, a really open, a beautiful gay man who runs this great charity, does drag for fundraisers for our local firemen. We have a really integrated social crowd here. It's fantastic from rodeos to gay pride. Um, and he went and guarded, guarded the door while I went to town and I got the job done. But it, it was a really small moment of me being like, I'm going to do this and I'm going to, I'm going to have the guy over my shoulder going, don't, 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 you don't know. And right. And that's just, that's my, that's my beloved dad. And we're, we're ultimately really, but he couldn't hear what that was, but I had worked in that enough, but 
into academia and, and into my professional life, I think that's a really pervasive male-female mm. interaction mm. That, uh, can be. Yeah, well, and in ranching, in yeah. ranching, you see it also from the older generation of men to the younger generation of men. And then it's like trained in and just continues on, right? Totally. It's I not. Mean, that's, yeah, that's what I see over and over. And I can't tell you um, quite honestly how many times that younger generation um, has sat at my table and shed major tears um, and then said things like, like, you know, I can't believe I'm such a sissy or I can't believe I'm such a this, that, or the other, or it's no big deal. Like whatever, like my dad would literally kick me in the ass every morning and tell me like, you know, you are worthless, blah, blah, blah. Um, but you know, just whatever, it's not a thing. And I had listened to this and it's like, Oh, these are things. I mean, these are, um, things that carry through generationally. Um, yeah, yeah, but your story is so perfect and <laughs> it, <laughs> it really, it really takes all of the internal aligned she power to say, <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna just keep at this and I don't care yeah. how many times over and over, over days, over weeks, over years, yeah. that I am told, and it doesn't have to be verbal. It hardly ever is verbal. It's physical. Yes. It's yes. a way of not being acknowledged. It's all Huge. of those small things. Um, and yeah, no, sometimes I, you cannot even, you just get so used to it, you lose the recognition of it even happening and being a thing until yeah. some external force you know, calls it out or reminds you. Um, well, so that's really important there, Amber, that. So I want to call attention to that sort of what we're talking about are these collapse in identities. I can't believe how late it is. Uh, sort of the collapse in identities around like, I am this because I have this story about what's been said about me. Therefore, this is what I'm capable of. And we want to dismiss it, right? We want to be like, hey, that's, that's, go to the therapist or that's your trip or, but like, it's, it's, it's actually a muscle set within your neurological, your nervous system to be able to stand back and go, this is what I'm feeling. This is the belief. I'm going to stand back from it and actually go, huh, where did that story come from? Or can I choose yeah. possibly a different route, which comes from feeling that emotive process. So is that sort of, are you guys facilitating that journey as, as well? Kind of skill building? I, I hope so <laughs> that is that is definitely um, what I hear and what I see and what I observe as I continue getting to know the different women and seeing how they're showing up. And you know, sometimes we think it's all external things. And one of our participants um, was invited to play <clears throat> play music for a big event, <clears throat> and before she had been married and had four children. She was a musician in Nashville. Um, and she told me afterwards, she said, you know, I forgot how much joy it brings me to be on stage. And I've, I so often tell myself, oh, I don't have time or this and that. And she said, 
I'm just recognizing I have some laziness to work through. I'm going to make time because this brings me joy. Right. And so I asked her to put together a musical piece um, for a video that Women in Ranching did. And she sent it to me and she said, I locked my children outside. I went down in the basement and put myself in a closet and I did this. I hope it works. <laughs> and that's what it took. That five and a half minute of carving out of that time to bring her joy and to share her gift um, and why she had to be in circle with other women to yeah. recognize and remember. I don't know, but that's what it took. I, and this is part of it, right? It's the remembrance of self. Um, mm. I'm curious, we have a couple more questions. I know we're almost out of time. I really wanted to give time to talking about what's happening in light of, uh, you know, what, what women in ranching has been doing and what they are going to uh, progress into doing for women of color um, in light of mm -hmm. everything that's happening uh, with the unearthing of everything from police brutality mm -hmm. to the really large, finally way overdue public conversation of systemic racism, yeah. microaggressions yep. into the, I just yep. keep wanting to say yep. his name, George Floyd. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, well, you know, the first thing I want to say is, as you can probably imagine, for a group called Women in Ranching. We are predominantly white women living in the West. Um, and when I look in my rural communities, that's who I see as people who look like me. Um, so we are hosting a virtual conference November 13th through 15th. Mm. Um, and I'm in conversation with Nikki Silvestri of Soil and Shadow, who I want I her on the show. Uh, yes, that's, I'm hoping she'll yes, come I was, Awesome. Yeah, I was introduced <laughs> to her um, through the Piscinus Ranch team. Yes. And what I told her was, you know, the, the overarching theme beyond fence, you know, beyond fence lines and this idea of community is really giving space for our participants to, to say, who is my, who is in my community today when I look around? Yeah. And what are the historical reasons yes. for this to be the case? Yes. This, is, this isn't what we see today is not a true expression of what the West is. Um, and so, yes, I, I know that Nikki has incredible professionalism and grit and grace and yeah. candor. Um, and that historical narrative to, to speak to this community. Um, and then through that weekend, we'll be, um, we'll also be spending time with uh, women who ranch in communities of high predation with grizzlies and wolves. Yeah. So looking at our wild community and how we engage. Um, I'm talking to Robin Wall Kimmer of Braiding Sweetgrass. I know her. Uh, yeah, yeah that help yeah. us explore our soil and our plant, our ecological community. Like, how are we engaging in this community? Um, and then at the very end, coming back, coming back to ourselves and coming back to that story of the big leap and how am I integrating all of this? And with recognition, like with a refreshed recognition of why this is the way my community looks, what can I as an individual do about it?
what should I be doing about it? Um, that's, yeah, so that's magnificent. Those that's, are, yeah, those are some women who can really illustrate and, and walk you on mm -hmm. a journey that expands you. Mm -hmm. I, there are few I trust to do this work well right now. Mm -hmm that really allows yeah. the bomb and Robin is one of them. And Nikki, I'm just getting to know, but I've watched her work for a while and just gone, wow, she has done her work and she has a nuanced yeah. way that connects people. Uh, that's yeah. phenomenal to hear. I, and, and of course. So <laughs> I'm, I'm hoping Aurora, um, when we talk again after this fall, I can tell you all kinds of ways that the community is stepping forward. Um, you know, but for women in ranching, well, what we will, what we have done and what we will do moving on is creating and holding space for these necessary conversations to take place. Beautiful, Amber. I'm beautiful to hear and see. Thank you so much for being here with us today and for sharing that and for, and to all the women, quite frankly, because I, you know, they all are are with and a part of all of us as we all are making this movement forward. Um, some of these questions we didn't get to and what I would love if you're, I know you've got way too much today, I can hear that, but some of them will be posted up in this, in this I'm gonna put them all okay. together. Um, and that they're, they're ab absolutely, they came through slowly and so they just appeared now and I wasn't monitoring the chat because of the delay mm -hmm. as much as I want to. So this is still tricky. Um, but there are a few people reaching out that want to want to speak to uh, young farmers and also other regular sort of um, looking at, you know, the idea of a, of a what maybe is more of the idea of a commons as opposed to the concept of ownership, right? We had many nations here that occupied land. They did not put up boundaries and say, you will not pass, which is a really different yeah. way to manage land and land stewardship in general. Yeah. So that's part of what's fascinating about owning colonialism and owning an American Holocaust is to go, what happened from then to now that has made it so ineffective yeah. and disastrous when it comes to land management? Yeah. And it's due yeah. with a concept reality. Yeah. Yeah. And what are the policies that have put yes. this set of people in charge of all of this? You know, yes. How did all of that come to be? And 100%. Yeah. No, it's yeah. not separate at all. All right, everyone, yeah. thank you all so much for joining us. P please feel free to reach out and post in community. Um, we'll get smoother and smoother at this. I'm really grateful for your time, Amber, for your wisdom and for sharing your world with us today. Thank you so much. Um, and we'll just continue with these conversations, continue growing. Please say hi to everybody and to Ariel. <laughs> so great. <everybody. laughs> I will, I will. I'm sure I we would will. all love to see photos of that. That's an incredible day. Yeah. Um, man. So thank you so much. Yeah. Enjoy. Okay, thanks Aurora. Bye. Bye.